This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Yeah, howdy, partners, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hot up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor In this episode, we're heading to the Old West and looking at the portrayal of two very different cowboys. One is a pretty horrible brother-in-law grappling with his sexuality played by Benedict Cumberbatch, directed by New Zealand's greatest filmmaker, Jane Campion, and the other is a heroic Clint Eastwood type, conveniently starring and directed by a real-life Clint Eastwood type. Today, we're discussing Unforgiven and the Power of the Dog. I'm filmmaker and city slicker Craig Anderson, and as always, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile, and a dude who's never been convicted of cattle rustling, it's Herschel Isaacs. Hi guys. You know, we talk about genre all the time. This is like one of my favorite genres of all of them, so this is going to be a cool conversation. We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother, who would often keep him up at all hours of the night playing his banjo. (laughs) It's the associate professor of film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I was literally sitting watching Power of the Dog with Rebecca, and because Cumberbatch keeps getting the banjo, I go to Rebecca, I'm going to buy me a banjo. (laughs) It's got such an amazing sound. And it's only got four screens. Anytime someone comes over. Do you know that, just a very quick aside, do you know Ronnie Cox played that? Ronnie Cox. In Delivery. Oh, I knew real, that. I knew oh, Ronnie wow. Cox. In the Jewel. I knew that. Ronnie wow. Cox, because he's a really good banjo player. So when you watch that, you are watching something very special. Because uh, it's right. Ronnie Cox. He like applied himself. And obviously that kid yeah, is not yeah, playing yeah. it. Do, do you know how they did that? They yeah. had the world's one of America's greatest banjo players sitting behind the kid with his arms underneath oh, the kid's arms. Oh, that makes it even creepier. And, and, really? and he couldn't see the banjo. He was going like... Wow. And when you watch it, it's so spellbinding. Well, there you go. Imagine Bruce on his front porch. I'm getting a banjo. I'll let you yeah. guys know how that goes. <laughs> okay. You're with the next Steve Martin. <laughs> now, the three of us grew up together on Durragland in Western Sydney, and every episode we try to shout out to an experience or institution that made us love film. This week, we're going to talk about a place where culture met consumerism. Yes, I'm talking about the biggest indoor markets in the Southern Hemisphere, <laughs> Parkley Markets. <laughs> big market just north of Blacktown. Our parents used to take us to Parkley Markets like maybe once every, I don't know, six weeks, two months. And the thing about Parkley Markets is if you start at one end and just keep walking in a single direction, you could be there for hours before, <laughs> before, <laughs> before you see one daylight on the it. other side. Because yeah. there's like exits and entrances on at the four corners. The other thing that I loved about Parkley Markets, it was this unknown quantity because you turn up and you'd never, it was kind of like a day at school. You never, you were never quite sure what was going to happen once you were in that place. Bruce, remember there was that dude in the middle who had that huge book stand? Yes. yes. What do you mean, that book stand? Yeah. That was our lives That's for iconic, years. That but how's, how's the world changed? Try to give the central real estate <laughs> of, a, a, a public, of a public meeting place 
to a bookseller, yeah. a second-hand bookseller nowadays. And it was nowadays, the biggest second-hand bookseller, I think, uh, book like collection mm. that I've ever seen. Outside of like, there was this great bookshop that Ursula and I used to go to in Penrith, uh, off oh, High Street. I know that one. That's yeah, it. Down I down love the alley. that place, right? Yeah, we, Ursula yeah. and I used to just wander through there. So because we were very book geeky people, I'm not exactly sure what mom and dad's investment in Park Lee was because we wouldn't get a lot of stuff. But we'd go there and Herschel and I would literally... We'd go to our parents, okay, we're going to go to the books thing. Mm. And we would be there for two hours well, just they had, browsing they, the There shelves. were a lot of, for me, there were a lot of DVDs yeah. and oh, there were a lot wonderful. of VHS at the yeah. time. Um, not as big as, I remember that book place, just huge. Yeah. But even that person had a few crates of, you know, movies that yeah. I could go through. There was also a lot of knockoff merchandise, like movie posters, movie t-shirts. There were t-shirts, so many. And there was every kind of stall you could imagine, Mm. because I think that kind of pop entertainment that we were all into was a a thing there much more than it is now, because everything's gone online, right? But back then, it was like you collected things and you wanted tangible things, so you could buy like our Terminator poster, for example, that we talked about in a few episodes ago, or you could get the sunglasses, or if you were suddenly because American culture and sport was becoming big, say, in the western suburbs. Mm. So suddenly you could go there and go, I'm going to buy a Lakers shirt. And you wouldn't buy an actual Lakers shirt, which would cost you 150 bucks. You'd buy the one for you know 1895 because it was a knockoff you made. Just, you, know, in... you never wash it because if you wash it, it's the end <laughs> it of it. It would fray. <laughs> every kid got their pop culture items, like their shoes. Everyone wanted the knockoff shoes from Parkley yeah. Market. You remember LA Gear? Yeah. What that well, company? Yeah. LA Gear's back, man. Big W. Get in there. What is that true? Yeah, man. What does a pair of LA Gear cost you in Big W? Big W is a low, low, like low entry w's level, you know, um, uh, store. So, but okay. like, our, remember Glenn, da- Glenn David, yes. our buddy, lovely person, very close friend of ours. He got LA Gear, and it was either him or another kid just kept pressing that the the basketball. No, no, that was Reebok, was Reebok pumps. Reebok pumps. But I think that's LA right. Gear but then the thing off. blew. Yeah, someone someone blew their. It was shoe like Austin box. Powers when it blew up on his face. Yeah, yeah. Someone blew <laughs> their Reebok pump. I remember that at school. The other thing on Parkley Markets is, um, remember it was like a cultural thing? Because mm. we grew up in the western suburbs and like for for people listening, if you've been to a school, if you like, went to a school or something where, you know, you might have the odd person that's not, you know, that's not sort of Caucasian or something like that. We grew up in a melting pot. Mm, yeah. And when you went to Parkley Markets and when you had lunch there, you could choose yes. from the widest array of foods that you could yeah. imagine. That was one of my favorite And you should say this, Herschel, this was also like late 80s, right? Like mm. mid, say 87, 88. So this is a long time ago where you would be exposed to those things that only became much more popular later. Like now you can go to Inner West, you can get anything you want. But this was so cool at oh, Park yeah. Lee. Oh, yeah, Gosleme and yeah, yeah. Oh, you'd just get incredible. that there, you'd never heard of it and before. And you get to a place and there's people who got huge pots of yeah. curry. And that, yeah. you know, Park like, Lee was also like, like for me, I reflect on it now, right? And it was an indication also of the difference of cultural boundaries in Sydney. Mm. Because if you even now if you go to Parkley, it's a little bit different, but you still see the complete like division between going out there and going to the market, say, around the city. Like mm-hmm. Addison you, Road markets. Yeah, you see a different <laughs> kind of culture. <laughs> yeah. It's a different culture. It's a different dress. It's a different politics. And I remember going to Christmas carols once with Rebecca, and we went to um, – we went to like Southwest. Mm-hmm. They had like an event on, and every well, ninety percent of people there 
were in Muslim garb. Mm. And it was this amazing experience because we're sitting there and Byron was a baby still and people are singing Christmas carols, but it was not the domain Christmas carols on like yeah, Christmas yeah, Eve yeah. where Delta Goodrum gets up, right? <laughs> and it's a reminder of, wow, there these, we grew up with these, like in, in a cultural space. It's so miles away from, you know, the the east mm. or That's what the makes north. It cool, though. Or, yeah. Well, I find well, it I weird. It was we're wonderful. Lucky for that. Um, ending up at in the industry I work in, where everyone um, presents as if they're quite diverse <laughs> and stuff. But it's yeah. mostly, you know, it's at least half all white, right? But you, no one grew up out west. So yeah, same with there's this weird fetishization of, of other or different, and it's also not familiar to them. Yeah. I forget. Like the, it really struck me a few years back when. A whole bunch of them, we were away, and then some. They, someone said, have you ever kissed a non-white person? I'm like, what? Yeah. yeah. You know, but no one else in that room of about 15 of these Isn't arts workers had kissed someone who wasn't white. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like, <laughs> no, you know, I'm not a stud, but I'm just saying. No, you are, we? we all <laughs> it's know true. That. I have kissed most people on earth. <laughs> Every <laughs> nationality. <laughs> Every and, and, and they <laughs> seek you out. This is what's interesting about it. There it is, Instagram. You can find me. Come, come for a kiss. Um, I want to play you an ad from Parkley Markets. Oh, great. This will be Because there's more fish for sale than swimming in the ocean. More fruits and veggies than abstinence. Oh, that that tune is famous, yeah. right? Like, this goes back to the scale you were talking about, Ashley. Like, they say, have a Parkley Markets day. day yeah. Spend your mm. whole day there. Like, show up and just... It's yeah, also yeah. Cheap just but that's under, what it was. You know, it was also the closest thing you could get to going to the Easter show. Yeah. That rush of the showbag pavilion is, is <laughs> similar no. to a uh, I've actually never been to the Easter show. And you didn't have to... You, you, what? It was, it was I've never been to oh, the Easter show. I've never been to the Easter show. I got a train spotting T-shirt when I was older. Oh, there. Yeah. I went there and got a train spotting T-shirt. I should say, it's still operating today. It's been there for at least 30 hey, years. we should go there sometime. I'd to go. take the kids. Let's go to Park Lee in the next few weeks. Okay, there's Parking for 17,000 cars, which is sounds weird to me, but remember how hard it was to find a car park? That was the worst because part 17,000 car parks, and I still remember driving around forever. And then there was the second lot that's like down there. Yeah, yeah, but then you got to like, walk oh, a mile. It's like yeah. Australia's Wonderland. Remember you go yeah, there, forget yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Spend the first two hours every day finding a car park. Well, there it is. If you want a slice of life and a, a, an experience different to how you might be living, go to Parkley Markets and get yourself... There's Mr. Whippy there. Don't worry about that. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of Mr. Whippies stationed at every entrance and exit. So you can grab an ice cream cone and walk around and then get some delicious food from another place. Let's revisit this. Let's go to Parkley yeah. and, and update and our And then audience. update the audience. Let's. That would be oh, nice. I, I think. have an update from last week. Great. Yes. yes. Brace yourself, listeners. The, the, the girl that was on the train... Remember, I talked yes. about the year. T- I contacted her. Um, I'm sure she won't mind me saying her name's Sharon Chan. And uh, coincidentally, as I was writing, how do you this, still know her? Like, well, I went through my emails. I found an email I sent in oh, 2008, that's and that's like the last time we spoke. But it was only like we'd only seen each other one other time after that train incident. Yeah. We she just happened. She lives out in Goulburn area, like okay. out west. But she happened to be in town. That very weekend, on, in so Sydney. the same day that we recorded our podcast was the same day. Later in the afternoon, she dropped over to my house in Marrickville, and we hung out. We caught up, uh, like uh, we had a nice chat for an hour. It was so, so sweet. So that's it's like it's like you continued the link later before sunrise. Yeah, Remember it was we compared exactly it to like that. that. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. like your sunset. Yeah, and now you just. The third installment is like in 15 years from now. Yeah. And it was great. That's it was awesome, just like, Craig. what has it been like? Oh, 30 years, I guess. Yeah. But it was awesome just to see. And it was so interesting talking to her because I was seeing that 
young person who I knew, like in everything about her. But yeah. I'm sure if I just had saw her on the street nowadays, I wouldn't you think would of it like it. that. But I just was like, I know, it was very exciting. I was very wow, happy to, amazing, to run right? into her and to, for her to come around. So thank you, Sharon. If you do hear this, um, great to see you again. All right, let's move on. As always, today's episode will feature spoilers for both films. And I'm not going to say which one right now, but trust me, you don't want the last scene spoiled for you for one of these films. So make sure you watch them first. If other films pop up along the way, we'll do our best not to spoil them for you. Let's get into it. Take one. Up first on today's show is Unforgiven from 1992. After spending the 1950s and 60s being a world-famous actor in genre films, Clint Eastwood also started directing and producing movies. Throughout the 70s and 80s, he directed more than a dozen films of various genres until, in 1991, he began work on a western by the name of Unforgiven. It's the story of a retired gunslinger played by Eastwood who now lives a much simpler life, tending to a small farm with his young children and mourning his wife. But when a group of women offer a reward in order to get vengeance, Clint's character Bill catches up with his old friend Ned, played by Morgan Friedman, and a young wannabe cowboy as they head out in search of the men who wronged the women. The major obstacle that stands between them and the collection of the reward is the town sheriff, played by Gene Hackman. The young cowboy proves himself to be incredibly green and cowardly, and when Ned is murdered, Bill heads into town to demonstrate why there are so many legends about him. Just hold it right there. Hold it! You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. The whole film is bookended by scrolling text that tells the story of Bill's mother-in-law, who is mourning the loss of her daughter as well. The film deals with the issues of ageing, morality and justice. The movie turned its $15 million budget into $150 million worldwide and it was nominated for nine Oscars, winning four for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Editing and Supporting Actor going to Gene Hackman. Today it's considered one of the classics of the Western genre. Herschel, this is a movie we grew up with a lot. What's your take on Unforgiven? Yeah, it's not often that I come to a movie that we're doing where I've had a long sort of period of time between, you know, since the last time I watched it. Mm -hmm. So with Unforgiven, I've watched probably the Sergio Leone movies a handful of times since I've seen Unforgiven for the last time. I'm yeah. probably, maybe, I don't know, five years, ten years, or something like that. So coming to it, I didn't know what to expect. Like, I was thinking, is this going to feel completely dated? Because it won all the Oscars. And when Clint Eastwood got up, I remember when on the night of the Oscars, Bruce, you and I were watching mm. this. And I remember people saying, it's like a turning point in genre film because mm. Clint Eastwood was not only making a Western, he was reinventing the Western. Yeah. So I thought to myself, all right, am I going to watch it and think this is actually boring or it's dated because Power of the Dog was such an effective vehicle when I, when I saw it. And it was so modern. Power of the Dog had just yeah, come so out, modern. right? And, so and everyone was talking to about your Western. point, Herschel, I, I was not very literate on, on film, well, especially not Westerns, mm. um, and I've learned some more stuff in the last few decades. But when we saw that when as a kid, it was the probably the first big Western I'd ever yeah, seen that wasn't yeah. a comedy. And I, was like, I reckon this is that's the a best. really great like, point that we should say to listeners, like our way into the Western, like for me, it wasn't John Ford. Yeah. It was Clint Eastwood, right? And, and I came back full circle with John Ford. Yeah, it was definitely wasn't uh, Leone, Sergio Leone. No, no, so like Leone came later. So that's like, an important I wouldn't point know yeah. who Sergio Leone was. And right? that's an important point. So when you say the direction that we came into it, if you come through Unforgiven, you could be 
forgiven for thinking <laughs> that that's the, <laughs> that's the model of the Western. Well, this also, Young Guns was another big popular <laughs> film, good like point. ridiculous films Young Guns like was that. a big like, movie. Yeah, yeah, Tombstone right. yeah. came out. I don't out know about Young Guns. You know. Young Guns 2 was a shocker. Estevez. Yeah, but I just mean that yeah. the iconography yeah. of the Western for us yeah. was Young Guns, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, it certainly wasn't Howard Hawks' I, I loved a horror film called House 2, which was a sequel to the William Catt film House from 85. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. House 2 was 88, and it features... Um, a, a zombie cowboy, who, yeah. you know, who speaks like yo, the West guy, you know, and and like hangs the out. One in the one other house with touchstone him. I wanted to mention uh, is Back to the Future Three. Oh, of course, that was the other yeah. major. Yeah. Kind and it's of funny because um, in talking about um, in talking about Unforgiven, with the, the the folks that I live with, the kids in our house, Elsie, Clyde, and Lockie, I was going. So Elsie said, "You know." Um, that's like Back to the Future 3, right? And I go, yeah, but that's not Back to the Future 3. Um, this other movie, Once Upon a Time in the West, that's yeah. the Back to the Future 3 uh. bit. And it was really interesting that a person who doesn't know movies yeah. as well could see the similarities between it. So mm-hmm. the way they tip their hats to each other and the, and the way it's like a, a narrative that, like, that forms a, a sequence. Totally. And like, I reckon the word you use then, you know, like Eastwood had always wanted to be involved with the Western. So he started with Sergio Leone, but then he starts working with Don Siegel, and then he becomes his own director, and he carries the idea of the Western through. And Eastwood, maybe more than anyone else in American history, is the guy that is responsible for keeping the Western going. Mm. If not for Eastwood, I don't think anyone would be yeah. making it. Like, who the hell's going to be watching Westerns now? I've, I've got right? a point in that, you know, because I think Eastwood lays the foundation for even – you know, really very modern stuff, like Justified or uh, Yellowstone oh, really? and stuff like that. Those things don't really get what watched, I think. Right? Okay, Deadwood's so, yeah, a great yeah, HBO yeah. comes yeah. in. And then there's a whole realism side uh, of, of the Western. But I also wanted to say that, you know, I know you'll probably uh, talk more about the, the revisionist stuff of Unforgiven, which is a major and interesting debate about that movie. But just to say that, the this concept of the Western evolving and and, and kind of revising itself and always reflecting on its history is already there way earlier. So one mm-hmm. of my favorite Westerns is a, is a movie called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. And when you watch that movie, Unforgiven is clearly like um, it's it's trying to reflect on its own history. You know, So Unforgiven is not just about, in fact, this is a line that I used in my PhD thesis when I was writing about Unforgiven. Unforgiven is not just about the American West. It's about the American Western mythology. Like it's it's looking back at Leone, sure. Don yeah, Siegel, yeah. you know. But John Ford was already doing that in *Man Who Shot Liberty Valance* or *The Searchers*, or you know those sorts of later John Fords. So I, my take is that it is actually worth all the awards that were that were given it. Yeah. Um, I came to it and I watched it again, and I thought to myself, you know, as, as I said before, I thought to myself, "Am I going to just find this dated and 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 sort of irrelevant?" And kind of the opposite happened. I was surprised at the degree to which Eastwood had kind of reinvented what he was after, the way he could pull back in, and, and mm. just, it's such a quiet, lyrical kind of movie. I, I just want to remind the audience that the year before City Slickers came out, yeah. which was also a huge, but it was a comedy. Even though I think it's a very effective storytelling of a Western, yeah. like a great it's narrative. Good, no, it's, it's, it and, it does and the, the whole, music is amazing. You know, your Yeehaw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a thing yeah. to That's Red River. River. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think that it's a. Uh, I think it, it did a good job. But it could have made the entire nineties and the future of westerns into comedies. Yep. If Eastwood doesn't make Unforgiven now, right? Maybe all we have is the meta-reflexive postmodern western. Yeah. Maybe the western dies. Yeah. And the key question I think for all of us as a group is like, what is Unforgiven doing? Like, 
a lot of people saw Unforgiven as this radical moment. Okay, but why? What did it do for but the But here's West? the other thing. I I was reading about it, right, uh, about Unforgiven and what it meant and how it was a revisionist and how it dealt with morals and ethics and said, you know, not everything's black and white. But because I, uh, Unforgiven is one of the first proper Western dramas I've ever seen, that's what I all think they all are. And then I've realized since, oh, no, no, it's all about a very... You know, it's everything that you guys know that Westerns are mm. about, which is black and white rules in America. And yeah. Mythology. I mean, yeah. I think Unforgiven is a genuine evolution of a genre. That's yep. why I think it stands the test of time. That's why I think it's it remains important. So my take is that it's actually a meditation on time, but working mm. in a couple of levels. So you, William Money, the, the protagonist here, this is a person who, who where we pick him up, he's, I guess depressed, he's a failing father to some extent, he's a failing farmer, um, things are not going well, he needs money. Um, but he constantly says that his late, his late wife saved him you know, from the evils of, of, of liquor of drink, and, yeah. and violence. I, I love it. The, I love the evils of, of drink and killing. That's <laughs> what he says. I love that, right? I, yeah. But he says that again and again. And, and what you learn when you watch it, and as the movie progresses, is I think there's a... De- I think Eastwood is playing that there's a degree of doubt in his mind himself. I think he doubts what he is. He's always trying to say that I'm a better person, but he questions whether he is actually a better person. So I think Eastwood is saying, or he's looking back at the Western genre. But do you mean money or Eastwood? Both of them. So that's 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 the point I'm trying to make, right? So in terms of money, a question that I had was, was he always that and is inevitably the killer? Because he starts out saying that I'm no longer the killer, but then he falls yeah. into that, and the, and his his true purpose I, is exposed as being vengeful and pursuing money, which is exactly what he was. And I, his name is money. I, that's such a great question because this is the big debate about Unforgiven, right? Is Unforgiven Eastwood's kind of return to the heyday of the gun? Because yeah. like, think about what this is. This isn't. This movie is about, in effect, the end of the Old West. Mm. We don't have any need for gunslingers who can, you know, from Blazing Saddles, hey, he's got the fastest hand in the West, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. We don't need that anymore. The frontier is done. We've gone West. We've got all the way West, right? So we, the, the whole movie is pitted against the wilderness, which has no law, and you hit Gene Hackman, and he's the mm. uber- like law, the rule of law, right? Mm. So the question is, in this new world where the frontier has been conquered and law and order have come and we've subdued the the natives, right, do we still need gunslingers? And when Eastwood says, hey, I've, you know, he says something like, I've always been good at killing folk. Yeah, right? we, we goes, so yes, I've, I've killed women and children yeah. and but just about everything that's walked that's the what, earth. And so one of my questions when I started to do a lot of work on that movie was, is it taking us back to Leone and to the, the, the moment of the incredibly powerful masculine gunslinger who could subdue the world through violence? Or is it in fact saying that is past now and we need to move on? So you see, I don't think it's either. And I think that's why where this yeah, really scales, a real ambivalence, the scales right? a real yeah. height here. Because I think, I got in my notes here, is, is Unforgiven or is William Money in his end persona, is he just Dirty Harry? Is he mm. the person that yeah. solves the problem with a gun? Or is he the person that says to the kid, um, you know, killing a person, you take away everything he is and everything yep. he, he, he'll ever have. So that's the doubt that I'm talking about. It's, it's uncertainty. 
but it's Eastwood laying it all bare, and and I think it's his indecision as to what the evolution of no, the genre is itself. I don't see it yeah. as an indecision. I see it as sort of a conservative narrative. We know yeah. that um, Eastwood's a very conservative well, he's a strong Republican, right? Yeah. He's conservative, but it's like, well, sometimes you need to bring out the gun. You know, that's <laughs> so what I feel can like. Can I it say, is. Craig? Yeah. That is ostensibly what I argue, but not not in 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 so negative a fashion, right? Sure. Not for, so I read Unforgiven as, hey, sometimes we got to get our guns out and kick some ass, yeah. right? And that was very much Sergio Leone. Yeah. But it's not just Sergio Leone. Let's remember what Eastwood has also done. All the Dirty Harry movies are in effect vigilante movies authored by the state because there's a cop, mm. but you still get your gun out and you shoot the bad guys, and it's very. You know, it's very like, um, in a crude sense, it's black and white morality. Right? Yeah. Um, I will say though that when I got my examination reports back for my thesis, <laughs> one of the examiners, who was now a good friend of mine, um, said that even though he loved the reading of Unforgiven, he fundamentally disagreed with me, and he said he thought that Unforgiven was the great moment of Eastwood's career, where he where he was saying to us. The, the phrase that's often used is called regeneration through violence. It's a famous statement uh-huh. made by a scholar um, that the American West is about the ethos of regeneration through violence. If I kill everything, we can make it anew, right? Um, and so the, the examiner was saying to me, nah, that's Eastwood is, is turning his back on that. He's going, no, no. This, is, this is a failed order. Right, well, that see, money uh, yeah. has to come to terms with that. So, but I like your reading better, which is in fact what we're seeing is an ambivalence toward. toward I think it's this, an right? ambivalence. Okay. I think it's an ambivalence because if you go to Dirty Harry, there's no place in Dirty Harry for him to make himself look vulnerable. I don't think it exists in mm. Dirty Harry. But very early on in Unforgiven, when he's got the handgun, I think this is a throwback to Dirty Harry. All the Dirty Harry movies. He's got the handgun and he's trying to shoot the cans, right? And these kids mm. are watching him and he can't get the cans. Then he walks inside with silence. The kids don't know what he's doing. Comes out with a double barrel shotgun and then shoots the can off the thing. <laughs> now, to me, I love that. that to me, that's that's a statement of his stubbornness. Yeah. And what? So no, but that's also like saying. Using spot fires or using a tiny knife won't help. You need to go out and just cut the arm off. You, you've got to. So it's like you know. a crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a gun. So f- I, I, I'm the ambivalent reading. Yeah. That's because I, I think that when his friend is killed, and you know when Gene Hackman in that amazing sequence that goes for quite a long time, when he says that. Um, it doesn't matter how fast you are, because that's as fast as I can draw. Yeah. Mm. But it's the person who's cool under pressure. Yep. And that's when Eastwood's killing people. And, and what a mechanism that is to not question it. You know, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger in commander with thousands of bullets yeah. raining down mm. and and one of them didn't hit him. Yeah, but at the same time, it's that old mythology of I was born to kill, right? Like, it's no different to Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon when he goes, hey, maybe four guys <laughs> in the whole world could have made tell that you what, you shot. Know, no, but what I mean is... There is a tradition in American, especially Western mythology, that some people are just born able to kill. And that well, you, look at therefore... Eastwood's American sniper. You know, well, that, so, yeah, so, so I guess what I'm saying is this. I like the ambivalent reading because we should also say that on the publicity stuff for Unforgiven, it was pushed very much as overturning the Dirty Harry mythology. Yeah. But Eastwood also was on record going... Because I remember seeing an interview with him and Bill O'Reilly, mm. right? Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> ultra-conservative, <laughs> nutcase on Fox. A rational human being. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thanks again for watching. We'll leave you. Okay. Now, I can't read it. There's no, there's no words on it.
Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Yep. We'll do it live. Fuck it. And Bill O'Reilly kept going, look, I really love this, but like, you know, when 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 your character, he sort of when he's falling weak. off the horse. And, yeah, falling, yeah. Yeah. and I remember Bill O'Reilly goes, you know what I really like, Clint? I like those Dirty Harry movies. <laughs> and Clint Eastwood, you could see he was visibly uncomfortable because that was not what Unforgiven was for him. Unforgiven mm. is about a man who's old. He's past his prime. He's no longer masculine. He's not virile. You know, like everyone else wants to have sex with the, the sex workers, but not Eastwood. Mm. He's not the virile cowboy that is going to subdue the land. But added right? to that, it's also a morality, though. Like yeah. he introduces the morality into money. The other thing I'd say is consider what puts him over the edge, okay? So he's going to kill people, and he thinks on that equation, it's fair that he kills them, yeah. right? But what sends him nuts is his friend getting killed and put up to display. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you go back to the Dirty Harry movies, especially, of, obviously, of the Dirty Harry series, Dirty Harry and then Magnum Force are the clear standouts. Yeah. Both those movies, the drivers behind Dirty Harry or Harry's final act are what happens to his partner. Mm. So the partner's always played a key role in Eastwood's kind of lead. Yep. And it's, it's, I think it's Eastwood, it's about loyalty, it's about... But interestingly and unforgiven, though, it's also about race. No, because I want to yeah. come back to that. But, but that friend I was thinking that. how this sits in a, a, a racial vacuum. But like, wanna, where I, was the... Yeah, okay. Do you know what I mean? And I've got that. I mean, it's I, fascinating As me. I often do, I want to pose a couple of questions to yeah. both of you yeah. as we work our way through it. I just want to say a couple of things before we get onto that. If you put together this cast and you've got Eastwood, Freeman, Richard Harris, um, Gene Hackman, you know, we, we talked about the conversation... And I pretty much love Gene Ackman in everything mm. he's ever been in. And I've seen a hell of a lot of Gene Ackman. But he, it seems like he was born to play Eastwood's antagonist yep. in this movie. He is at, at times callous and psychopathic, you know, weird. And at other times a strangely moral kind of measured person. His performance he's, uh, yeah, is man, he's off the charts. What's the line? I can't remember it, right? You know, I often think of Gene Hackman as maybe his greatest moment. He's, we've talked about this at the end of the conversation when yeah, he's sitting yeah. there and he's playing the sax and yeah. he's bereft of everything. And he's like this um, American failure, right? What's the line when Eastwood's about to shoot him with the double barrel shotgun and he says something like, I'm building a house. This. I didn't deserve this and mm. I'm, I'm building I'm a house. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is again a big American tradition. You go to the wilderness and you set down roots. It's no different to every other well, colonial narrative. Goes, right? I just want to sit here and then skinny goes, and smoke my pipe. And, and, and right? do what? He goes, well, smoke my pipe and watch the sunset. Yeah. And this is the great mythology of the West, which is you go to civilize the land by building on it, right? And it's no different to the Australian context. We know this narrative in Australia as well, in the colonial context. And when he his recourse is to go, but like I just I I'm I building a house. That is just an amazing statement because the whole idea of the homestead. Yeah. Mm. You know like how you use that colloquial the homestead? That was like a whole identity formation for the American West. Like Build your homestead. Be on the homestead. Speaking of skinny, um, when people watch the scene where Clint Eastwood goes in and just it's carnage, his murdering of skinny has to, you know. Which one is skinny? Skinny is the, 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 the guy, the, the, the the guy that owns the brothel. Oh, the I bar hate and that, the brothel. Yeah. So when he kills skinny, because talk about a great character actor. I'm just looking him up. Anthony James um, from 
famous films like Naked Gun Two and a Half. But <laughs> Skinny is absolutely. He, he, He's, yeah, he he's plays the thug in Naked Gun 2 the sleazy thug. And, and what's interesting about the way this is written um, is that Skinny's quite central to the plot of the film, and also he is a conduit between the Eastwood narrative mm. and Hackman narrative mm. and, and the contract killers coming to, to kill these, these, these guys. It's, that it's, it's a great narrative. Like his character increasingly makes you, you hate him. Slowly, yep. like at first, it's like, oh, he's fine. Exactly, he's yeah, he's exactly. the administrator. He's in charge. But by the end, I'm like, oh, when he gets shot, I'm like, yeah, it's that's an the important role, and he's yeah. very good in it. When Eastwood says, "You better clear out of there," yes, sir. Just hold it right there. Hold it. Skinny's been central to the movie, and the fact that he gets killed so clinically without a word from Skinny. Yep. Mm. Is is another testament to you know the way the the tension ramps up in the end. The second, can I just yeah. add one thing in that clearly supports the reading of, in a sense, we're kind of we 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 we're reincarnating the man with no name from Sergio Leone mm. or Dirty Harry's. What about how Eastwood comes into town? There's a storm breaking. He's on the horse and he comes in like the bloody the apocalypse, right? Mm. That is absolutely a trope from the western. You come in. And no one can mess around with you because you have killing and, and you. When he when he goes out, remember he yeah. says to them, "And if anyone takes a shot at me, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your wife, and I'm going to kill your children." Yeah. So the level of his command. So the it's, idea it's, of, it's like, also like the threat of violence, which again in his film Grand Torino. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's a similar thing. It's like the example. cowboy of the street, so to yep. speak. Yes, but it's a, it's, a mora- it's it's a morality within the chaos and the carnage. So when he leaves, he goes back to his children. And William H. Money, the killer, and the killer of women and children, never went back to their own kids after the job was done. He's a different human being. Well, great point, because the traditional narrative is you don't return to your family. You, you know, you're like Kane in Kung Fu. You, you keep Mm. Traveling the land, it's right? That's the great American mythos: is you journey out to explore the land. But in fact, Eastwood goes home. Exactly, and and, he, and, that, the, and he says, home. "Take the money to Ned's wife." And yeah. he so he has a moral compass which didn't exist before, mm. and that to me is what Eastwood has, has and revised. And it's a complete yet. like overturning of a like a political ethos because mm. the po- the politics of the traditional Western say. Um, you know, in the searches, Ethan Edwards isn't going back to the family. He's heading off into the distance, right? You know that old thing of the cowboy goes into the distance. Well, money doesn't go into That's the a distance. Key, it's a key he returns to his family. And that is like the killing off of a legacy. See, it's clearly he's wanting both things here. Basically, I, in my opinion anyway, he, it's like Rush Hour. He's a good guy. <laughs> I love it. You okay. can bring everything back yeah. to Rush Hour. Yeah. He's either Rush Hour one or two. You can always <laughs> He's a good guy, but sometimes you got to blow shit up. <laughs> <laughs> but I this think it's a generational thing. I think that there's the kid in it, right? Yeah. And I think it's also a comment on my generation does this. Your generation might not be able to do this. Yep. And, which I think is also hey, in a lot of his movies. I like the you take know? care that's of business. In, we yeah, we yeah. take care Space of business. So that's Cowboys, an essential conservatism, right? <laughs> yes. Which is... You guys just can't step up. Yeah, you're not man yeah, enough. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly to step would up. say it a different way. Yeah, but I think Clint Eastwood's a little more <laughs> sympathetic. Course. Like you guys can't do this. Yeah, I do this. This is what we did. Yeah. yeah, this is what my generation was able. Like, and in another way, and we can read it in a much more kind of political way. We built this nation. What are you guys doing? <laughs> right? No, no, no. I'm saying like, 
the, these people. What are you doing on your TikTok? Yeah. Is it back, back in 1991. <laughs> what are you people doing on TikTok in 1991? Million dollar baby, you look out. <laughs> two really quick, two really quick things before we finish up on Unforgiven. Is there a more iconic, modern single shot or moment? That when Eastwood heads out the door and he turns back with his hat on his head, mm. yeah. that was the head of the trailer. It's the it's the cover of the VHS. Hey, can you remind DVD? me? Mm-hmm. Just sketch it for the for the listener, but also because it's been so long. He's turning back. He looks back. Is the door open? The door's open. Yeah. And can we see a, like oops, can we see like a very deep deep it's field not a deep, shot? It's not a deep field, okay. but the lighting on his face gives you a kind of silhouette, and then he turns and you get his features break out. The reason I think it's so iconic is because I think it became the symbol of the modern Western. So there's a personal edge to William Money that you can't get with Harmonica or The Man With No Name or mm. something like that. Even though that, that indiv- it's individualist, but it's not personal. It's not an introspective uh, depiction of a character mm. as it is with William Money. I'd like to say on the shooting of it that th- th- that scene is shot extremely well, right? The, yeah. the shooting. It's, yeah. But there are other moments in this film where now that we've passed and the Western's back and people are plugging into the mythology and the way you shoot for the last 20 years or so, things look better. Yeah. You compare the look of these two films that we're doing today, yes, Power of the Dog kind of looks better, right? But I was watching that and I, and I was thinking about the hokiness and I'm thinking it's because for the first time, how do you show two old men cowboys this who don't know how to it. do That's right. He's inventing how do you show that. I, I, rev, you know. So I was watching Power of the Dog, right? I was floored by just how beautiful yeah. it looked. Yeah. yeah. It's, but there's a kind of, you know, it's it's like an elegy. It's it's like poetic, right? Mm. Eastwood's not a poetic guy. And what I love about Unforgiven is there's nothing. Look, when they come to the town, the town's dirty. When it comes to the shootout, it's muddy mm. and it's it's filthy and you can't, you know, the shadows are so thick. Jane Campion doesn't shoot like that at all. Jane Campion shoots like, I want you to be immersed. You know, we're post yeah. bro- Power of the Dog is a post broken Mountain. I want to put to both of you is, the one thing that was a little bit jarring to me is that there's never any mention of race in this movie. Yes. So yeah. how come, even when Ned's killed, right, and they talk about Ned and, you know, they're hunting him down mm. and that, if it was reality they would be talking about him in a racial epithet yeah, completely. Yeah. Or well, especially because they, they put his body on display. Yeah, I was surprised when that I body mean, was like on display. It's bordering it, on a lynching, right? It's right, right? And, and But yeah. it's, it's missing that racial aspect. Mm. But now, so there must be... So Eastwood obviously intentionally did this. I read up David Peebles, who, who was the writer here. Um, he was asked about this. From what I can gather, it's this intention to make this... I guess, a human story of revenge and, and loss and tragedy rather than opening up that additional aspect to it because the film didn't have the scope to go there. It was never going to portray it. You know, when Ned talks about he lives with his, with his, um, uh, with his Indian wife and he, he says things um, like, well, you know the Indian people, they, they, can get the, they can get angry or something like that. Even that, it's, it's never mentioned about the, the racial tension between people at the time. Yeah, mm. but it's very much there, right? So, because it jars you when you see it. You go, mm. oh, his best friend is this guy. He's a black American. He lives off by himself. I was trying to imagine this, right? Let's say Spike Lee was doing this movie. The racial um, context would be so much more explicit. Yes. But Clint Eastwood is just not that guy. Firstly, he's a classical filmmaker. Secondly, he's essentially a, a political conservative. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. All I'm saying is he doesn't want his movie to be about race. He wants it to be exactly as you social about a human story. Now, whether we see that as politically a little bit 
kind of retrograde is another thing. Like, because I, I reckon Spike Lee would go, the fact that I don't mention race is a shortcoming of Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. So it's how you see it, right? Yeah, I mean, that was my question. When I was working my way through it, was it a shortcoming of Unforgiven? But I think you're right, because it's also that film has changed. Like, it's it's almost a necessary inclusion in a modern film. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, you know, whereas look, in Unforgiven... Yeah. If you did Unforgiven now and you don't talk about race, I think you've got a big problem on your hands. All right, well, we must move on to our second film for today. Take two. Our second film is 2021's The Power of the Dog. Filmmaker Dame Elizabeth Jane Campion had already won an Oscar for her screenwriting and been nominated for various other Oscars for her bevy of well-regarded projects, such as The Piano, Holy Smoke, Angel at My Table, and... Bright Star, which is uh, about uh, Keats. It's beautiful. Keats? Keats and uh, oh. John Keats, the poet, and oh, his right. uh, love. I can't remember. She's played by Abby Cornish. Oh, okay. Oh, it's exquisite. Yeah, check it out. Well, there it is. The Keats are all right. In 2017, <laughs> she read Thomas Savage's 1967 novel, The Power of the Dog, and undertook a screen adaption. The film tells the story of a closeted gay cowboy who was annoyed that his brother has recently married and brought his new wife and stepson to live with them in their large ranch house. The angry cowboy, played by Doctor Strange himself, Benedict Cumberbatch, undertakes a campaign of fear and intimidation against the new wife, played by Kirsten Dunst. Her foppish son slowly becomes friendly with the ever-angry Phil and pieces together that the reason why he is so angry is because he is secretly pining for his mentor who died 20 years earlier. The mentor is called... Bronco Henry. Bronco Henry. After threats from Phil towards the mother, the young man allows the cowboy to make him a rope, supplying him with an anthrax-ridden cowhide, which Phil uses and then dies from. The film is set in 1925 Montana and utilises sweeping shots of the landscape, atmospheric shots of the opulent ranch house and rich, luscious shots of the green environment. The film also features a stripped-back atonal score by Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood. This is the second Radiohead Yeah, because we did we uh, Tom York on Suspiria. That's right, we did, but that was our off-season. But you know, Johnny Greenwood in this year had three scores. Wow. He's actually turning. He's turning into the go-to person. He, for you the, know, it was the, the, the diegetic sort of stuff, right? Well, well, it's the. I mean, I love what you said there about mm. Atonals. What Johnny Greenwood has brought for those of you who've seen, there will be blood. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I couldn't help but at moments I was bringing whole yeah, sequences so bring of there back. will yeah, be blood yeah, yeah. into the the Montana setting because of that Atonal score. All right, now it was released on Netflix as an exclusive worldwide and it was nominated for 12 Oscars, the highest number for any film that year at the 2022 Oscars. It lost out on Best Picture 2, Coda. Yeah, oh, no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. For no, those no. of you who did your homework you from last week, it is Coda that took out that. And, um, that's I've got nothing against Coda. No, no, it's the story of um, setting a house with a family. I always use that David Lynch line. Where yes. I, can I just quickly, a very quick Go digression. ahead. Go to YouTube and watch David Lynch talking about watching movies on your iPhone. Yeah, he <laughs> loses and, and, it. And at the end of it, he just says something like, get real. You'll think you have experienced it, but you'll be <clears throat> cheated. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. 
get real. And I always, I used to say that in lectures all the time. I think of these things as a life is beautiful moment. Remember when that one Benini, yeah, Benini just climbs wrong. on the seats and everything? Yeah, and I, don't, I going, got no on. problem with that. I mean, that. how did Power of the Dog not win this? Are you kidding? Okay, go. All go. right, Wakoda won. The only Oscar it did win was for Jane Campion's directing. Did she win Best Director? Mm-hmm, that Yeah, yeah. So one from 12. Now, wow. Bruce, hey, well, that's fantastic that you won Best Director. Yeah, it's great. I mean, about time. Bruce, I, I don't think that there's been a single podcast where you haven't mentioned that you're a fan of Sergi Leone. <laughs> a fan of what? Uh, Sergi Leone. Uh, you haven't oh, waxed no, lyrically no, no, about Sergio him. Sergi Leone is a huge touchstone for me. But I want to know what you research. think about and, and what's your take on Power of the Dog. I was so excited when I found out that Jane Campion, of all people, mm. was going to make an American Western. Because it's so strange. But some of the best Westerns have been when you take people um, who are not American and not steeped in that mythology and get them to put it on screen. Because you get this kind of weirdness, um, almost like a strange – it's as if the Western takes on a strange uncanniness to it, right? So a Un- Uncanny the, is a great word for this film. I'll tell you why later. Yeah. Ab, you know, so, so you don't know where you're sitting, even in those opening shots. Yeah. You know, I love the moment where Cumberbatch – I love that you compared for Doctor Strange. I loved seeing him in this movie because so I don't like Doctor Strange and I'm I have an uneasy relationship with Marvel. So it was amazing to see a very good actor going, I want to do something different. Yeah. And that moment when he comes, you remember he comes in and he and I think the the um the the, the cook says something like, do you want your lunch or something like that. He goes uh, something like not hungry or not now. Mm. And the way that shot, his footfalls are brought up on the sound, and he goes up the stairs, mm. and you just hear his voice go, not now. He's, he's one that of the great actors going on like, at the moment. Whoa, yeah. like the staggering the. The machismo of that entrance, right? <laughs> and they kind of stoicism of, of that entrance. Very scary. It's so good. The other, I just so, want to ask really quickly, did you guys follow the sort of criticism of Campion in filming this in New Zealand? Because for me, it was a perfect displacement of yes. the film. So, this is yeah. what I mean about but it. But yet, yeah. there was a massive backlash. Yeah, but I mean, you know, huge this backlash is where, like, I think mainstream <laughs> criticism has lost its brain a bit because... It's as if to say that cinema needs to be faithful to some sort of, you know, um, reality or, 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 or what's a pro-filmic world, like the world that you're mm. shooting, which is so basically well, stupid, well, I think it was, right? You know, it was verging on the claim that she was, she was without, with, without authority or license actually taking from a genre yeah. that belonged to someone else. But there's also a kind of horrible kind of ethno-nationalism, ethnocentrism, yeah. like a New Zealander let alone a New Zealand woman, just shouldn't be going to the Western. Like, that's so stupid, right? Because we know of examples where, take a guy like Sergio Leone, he's an Italian. Yeah, no one had decides, a problem with that. Like, what the hell's yeah, going on there? Like, and he's Italian going, hey, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to... Now, it is true. Now, well, in, in America, there, there was, like, some blowback against, like, these sort of Italian spaghetti Westerns. Mm. Nonetheless, they've become major, major works and cult classics. I think uh, what happened was... The Western is very protected territory, and the the Western is the most American of all genres, and so it's like we have to be faithful to that tradition. I remember reading that and thinking, wait for the movie, because this is one of the great filmmakers that it we've was, had. It was probably right? Bill O'Reilly type. <laughs> it was probably Bill oh, O'Reilly no, before it's... you got done for inappropriate behavior. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, Can I just, I, I just want to, before we go much further, I came into this so cold watching this movie. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard about, I didn't even know it was a Western. Literally, I don't know how I avoided any knowledge yeah. of this film. 
It's quite Can quite skillfully, I guess. Really cool. But oh, wait, I thought it was going to be like I, a. I thought it was Australian. I thought it was shot in Australia, and I thought it was so going to really be. No I'm an idiot. I thought it was going to be those blue dog films about a oh, friendly yeah, dog yeah. that hitches a ride around the country or something. <laughs> oh my god! The, the, and then what I so discovered you mean because it was called Power of the Dog. Yeah, I, I don't know why my brain just was okay, like, so oh, okay, so it's Blue Dog Three, is it? <laughs> that's interesting. Red from my Dog Three. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce, you watched 20 minutes of it. Yeah. then called me up and he goes, "I'm 20 minutes in," and you said to me. You gotta drop everything and watch this movie. <laughs> I remember I started it, and within three minutes, there's a there's a gorgeous shot. So we get some of the exteriors, mm. but the, one of the most stunning shots. And this is you know this is Campion, this is um, Denny Villeneuve, this is Tarantino, where they just have an eye for framing. I don't know what it is. I don't exactly. You can try your best to teach this, but certain people see the frame in certain ways, right? There's a cut to where they're running like some cattle. And I'm convinced it's a really wide shot and there's a whole line and mm. the cattle's snaking. Now, I'm guessing that on a movie like this, you're setting this shot up. It's logistically very complex. But if you look at the colors of the cattle against the background of the landscape, mm. it's so beautiful, right? And this, I remember that was in the first, you know, 10 minutes or so. And it was at that moment I thought, I know people are saying, hey, this is an interesting movie. Do people really get how staggering this and, – and I was only 10 minutes in. I didn't even watch the whole movie. But I just knew this is a great filmmaker doing a Western, but she's not trying to apologize to anybody for doing the Western. She's embraced the history of the Western. So she's doing Red River. She's definitely doing Unforgiven, but she's especially doing Brokeback, right, if you mm. think to those exteriors and Brokeback. I just want to say, so you've got, an ex, you've got a New Zealander uh, who's best known for the piano, and that kind of rugged landscape coming to the American West, shooting in New Zealand, but again, that's immaterial, shooting an American Western. Ang Lee, when he did Brokeback, a Chinese filmmaker, and interestingly, to go back to that, the critical response to discovering that Jane Campion was going to make an American Western and the anger, Annie Prue, the author of Brokeback Mountain, was furious when she found <laughs> out that Ang Lee was... Now, Ang Lee oh, was right, regarded right. as one of the best filmmakers, right? Yeah. When she found that Ang Lee was doing it, she writes about this extensively. She said, and I thought, like, they're going to stuff up my story. <laughs> they, they're they going to ruin it. Because it is impossible for a non-American... And she said it was impossible for someone outside to understand that world of Wyoming in this time and to to really imbue it with what it is to be that kind of American, right? Wow. And then she said, when I saw the movie, I was speechless. I couldn't believe that how had he captured... She also talked about Heath Ledger, right, which is yeah. maybe one of the greatest performances. How had Ang Lee, a Chinese filmmaker, with an Australian male, been able to embody this repressed cowboy Right, So I just wanted to say there's something special we should acknowledge when external eyes come to the American Western. It's really spectacular, like like the Leonis. Well, it's again, the, it's, it's the revisionist concept, yes. right? It's the, and you might not say, well, from Unforgiven, Eastwood isn't an external because that's the irony of it. He is the person that really forged it with Leone and totally. other people. So but it is either. external to an extent that he's the older person. I didn't yep. get a chance to say this when we're talking about Unforgiven, but it's also the evolution of the Hollywood star with Eastwood yes. getting older. Oh, totally. I yeah. think that's a really... You're right. We didn't mention that. That's the critical point. Eastwood's getting older, right? He's also getting older as a director. I just want to say one of my favorite Westerns is uh, a spaghetti Western by a guy called Sergio Corbucci who made a movie called The Great Silence. And that is 
completely about the Western becoming anti-capitalist, right? If anyone's seen Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it's another mm-hmm. example of we're going to kick out the classical Western. We're going to make it something new. So, like, it stands to reason that Jane Campion's going to go, hey, I'm going to get in on this too, right? Like, there's a long tradition of American and non-American filmmakers going, I'm going to take the Western and I'm going to recodify it. So that's what they did. Um, on Power the Dog, like, I think we have to see it as um, exactly as you described, Craig. It's about, like, repressed masculinity. I think of and, it as a horror film. I, I yeah. watch this movie and I just feel like it's like a... It's, it's like how you West... take that kid, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 that kid's. St- well, it's it's like you're in this world. You can't fit in it. You can't. You're. It's like I'm um, falling down almost. You know, <laughs> with Michael Douglas, like you can't fit in. Yes. It's destroying you, and you're going to turn destructive on everything around you. I though. actually find it difficult to watch some scenes with Benedict Cumberbatch because of, like the 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 underlying violence that he commits against so many people. Yeah. Like you, you put yourself in it, and it's an it was awful to think of living that life. Well, can I th- – my experience of watching it as the person who thought it was going to be an Australian dog hitchhiking yeah. movie, I love the experience of going, oh, okay, so it's a Western. Uh, oh, no, hang on. This is maybe a gay Western, a mm-hmm. secret – oh, it's closeted. Oh, this is a love story. Yeah. And then all the way up until the last few scenes, I'm like, it's a love story. Oh, it's a tragic love story. <laughs> Do you mean, so a love story between – Between him and her, the two boys, the two, right? Got, yeah. Okay, and yes. by the end, I and was like, love this is bro- just with- – Bronco. Yeah, and, yeah. And, but then the, the music, the unease she starts to create in the last third, I start to go, oh, I know it's a love story, but I just feel like, are you saying that love is so hard in this world? But then I realized the last shot, mm. or when he's stroking the rope with his gloves, I'm like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> okay. It blew my mind. <laughs> I'm a what? sucker for this kind of ending, right? Yeah. When, but then I realized it's a horror, or it's a, it's like a murder. But it's it, like, okay, what? But i got to say, though, there's still an ambiguity to it. Oh, right? yeah, maybe we the don't kid know, him, but So I'm going to come back yeah, to Mizzelsen later, but, but we see, don't know what happens in that barn. But right? that's true. important, it's though, true. because there's an ambiguity. But the fact that there's an ambiguity means it wasn't just a simple love story because yeah. there is something, there's thing. something yeah. there, yeah. right? So for, like when I think back to Power of the Dog, I love the way it looks. I love anything with Jesse Plemons in it. And this goes yeah, back to Friday Night so Lights. Mm, this goes yeah. back to when he was a young kid in a TV show way back, right? He's going to be in Killers of the Flower Moon. He's going to be huge in that coming up this year. But it's also a nifty who done it, how did you do it, what is going on here? But I also think of it as a nifty, we don't exactly know what this is about. Yeah. You know, like I think of movies. So the two that come to mind are Presumed Innocent. <laughs> we don't really know what's going on, right? Like, who did the killing? Like, yeah. so it's really oh wait, it's about it's about infidelity, it's about obsession. It is, right? but it's better than presumedism. It's 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 better than it's the movie. It's a movie than yeah. presumedism. I also think of the Age of Innocence, right? The Scorsese wow. film, which is about wait, what's going on? Ah, oh, why no, no, right? Always knew. Mm. So. She was trying to hold on to her husband as he was slipping away. And anyone who watches uh, Age of Innocence multiple times sees how subtle that movie is, all the gestures where she knows, right? But he doesn't know she knows. And it's just absolutely brilliant. This movie is... Uh, I was watching it with my... So I've seen it several times, right? Because I was so in love with this movie. I watched it like three times within a week, I think, right? Um, but anyway, Rebecca and I watch it, and, and Rebecca is thinking this is broke back. Yeah. So she's waiting yeah. for the consummation, yeah. except we get that in Act 1 of Brokeback. 
but what's wrong with making a movie where you get the consummation in Act Three? Well, maybe that's the ending to the movie. Mm. When that final shot happened, Rebecca just goes, "What? What? <laughs> and then <laughs> what? He, wait, he did it on purpose. Yeah, and he's got the gl- and he's stroking and, the. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. But also, what about the stroking of the rope? Is that is that a um, possibly is that a scent a sexual thing? Like, well, that, well, that's the beauty of whatever it. Whatever you like, but, but, but it's the gloves that does <laughs> everything. But, but what about God. what about one of the final shots in the movie with Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst? How they've mm. reconciled yes. and yeah. they're healthy and they're happy, and he's staring at them. Yeah. Yeah. So you, but it's you all, go, isn't it? From was my that memory, the method in your madness the whole time? Well, this is the question: Is there premeditated because well, then you've got okay. usual suspects on your hands here. Because we definitely crazy. see him, and they're, they're critical. I mean, the movie's so beautifully structured. They're he critical. smiles after he looks out the window. Okay. How can that no, not okay, be? Well, hang a second. When you say he smiles, though, he smiles. it's not the same smile as well, like, Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's a little bit of the, it's a little bit of the Norman <laughs> Bates. It's a little bit of the Norman Bates smile. Yes. But at the same time, the movie opens it's contentedness. With, I feel when my da- when my father died, I you know I can't remember what I undertook to protect my mother. Right. Yeah. Mm. So that in fact that framing is again it's so clever. It's alerting us yes. to this movie is not about Benedict Cumberbatch. It's not about this kid. It's essentially about Kirsten Dunst and the need for her to be protected in a world where people victimize her. Mm. Everyone bloody beats her up in this whole movie, mm. right? Okay, um, when a person has the question of, if you want to go down the path of that reading that this kid orchestrated it, like, you know, and, and plotted and stuff like that, it's also about the clinical nature of it. But I love those scenes where, you know, when she walks in on the kid and he's doing the, the autopsy on the rabbit. And it's probably one of the most interesting characters or, or performances. Wasn't he nominated for supporting actor? Supporting I, I think yeah. he was nominated for supporting actor, right? yeah. Uh, he, he's central to this movie. See, I think, I probably don't think it's just about the Kirsten Dunst character, but I think it's working on so many levels. Yeah. But what was really surprising to me was this kind of plot device that I didn't expect from this movie. You know, Unforgiven is not about, wow, I didn't see that coming. No, but you know what? It works so well. That the, the last scene works so well, it makes sense of things that have been supplanted in me. Like the the music during the yeah. love, the, the well, the barn scene yes. and that, the, the, the unease I felt in that, then I'm like, oh, that's because he's killing him. And, and the, you mean when you reflect yeah, on Yeah, yeah, when I reflect, but also then it just sort of like uh, something makes sense in my head at the end of that moment, as, as does... Uh, well, what annoys me, what I think is genius, is how much I hate the guy at the beginning. When I was writing this, I was just going, okay, I start writing my synopsis while I'm watching sometimes, and I just started writing, okay, this guy is a real piece of work. He's yeah. going to be one of the best um, villains ever. And by the end, I'm super sad that he died yes. because he was in so love. So that was one of the questions I had. They don't play this movie to bring a lot of sympathy to Benedict Cumberbatch, right? He is Awful in every sense. Well, no, I don't agree. I, no, well, no, but what I, I mean oh, right, is, go on, go on. as it evolves, though, yes. the relationship brings out in him a kind of sensitivity. Oh. So I definitely feel that emerging, I'm going to take care of you the way Bronco Henry took care of me, mm. brings a softer side to him. But also, I don't know if you remember the first time it happens. He walks down in his new jeans down a line of cowboys <laughs> in their tents. Everyone whistles going, you know, cackles yeah, and makes fun of him. Yeah, but that scene is very Then deceptive. he comes in in front of them all and like a saviour and goes, here, let me show you how to do a rope. Yep. And it's like, either like at that point, he's so villainous that yeah, the but at only... the same time, what do you reckon the kid's doing? 
What, what is going I on? I don't there? know. I have no idea why he's so doing that. I Let's talk say, about that I, another so time. So I've seen it a few times, and I am increasingly convinced yes. that the boy is parading himself in front of Phil. Because remember, he yes, now so knows, he knows what about he's doing. Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He knows about the gay porn that yeah. he's found. He knows exactly what's going on here. I can't help think that he's parading, and that when Phil calls him over, yeah. that's the moment of a, of a major power transformation. Yeah, right. Which because is, he, and it's, yeah. it's and it's, it's so perfectly played because the boy is still going, sir, 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 but. In my opinion, something very subtle is going on here. But that's why I pays to watch this movie again. There was a bit of time between when I watched it the first time, then I watched it again with Kathy. And you you reconsider early scenes totally. that are so tied to the ending. And then you sit back and you go, that is one amazing piece of writing. Well, when he gets oh, called over a- by Phil in that moment, yeah. I just think it's the beginning of a grooming process. I think the only thing that's that what shifted, you th- so, yeah, yeah, I think he's so villainous that I'm like, okay, so now he's going to try and seduce the boy yeah. because he's a villain. Okay. And that's all I can think about. Now, of course, now recontextual by getting to the end, I'm like, oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent way he has decided to seduce Phil. I feel Phil. that he's, there's a sympathy that comes into him at that moment, but there's also a kind of sadistic nature that comes out in the boy mm. that's going to be that's going to be explored further right because it's near that it might even, actually it might be the scene just before that so again I, I, you know, we talking rabbit? we'd have to know the proximities yeah. where he finds the anthrax animal yes. starts mm. to skin it now at that point you don't know what's going on there right because this kid's doing operations everywhere but if that immediately precedes the parade then we could start to infer a degree of calculation here Right, but it's, I don't want to see the movie that way. It's incredibly subtle, like it's a, it's a masterclass in how you introduce an idea, yeah. and at the end you pay it off without having to shout at the and audience. You, but you also never give it away. I know it's one I of know. the best. And also, can I say it's not a cheap twist. It's like you know we did Psycho a couple of weeks ago, yeah. right? <laughs> now I love the twist in Psycho, but Hitchcock is a guy of cheap twists. Mm. I got no problem with that. I love that. Hey, man, I'm a Brian De Palma fan. Everything's a cheap twist in Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is the twist year is resonant on 10 levels. So it's never cheap. It's thematically so complex. And it I love what you said. It takes a master filmmaker to bring that you, out. You can tell the level of, of achievement when you sit back and you go, okay, the value isn't in me trying to unpick exactly what happened here, but just to sit back and marvel at the complexity that's been achieved. Yeah. That, that, I, I was in awe of it when this thing finished. Well, as I said, like, the, my admiration for this movie, I think it's easy. For me, it's so much... I, I, I've always had an interest in the piano, but I've never been able to love it. I think this is just a superior work on, and you know, the piano is so lauded. I also just wanted to say that the Western setting is so modern because of the atonal score. And I think we, you know, you've mentioned a few times, Craig, I think you can't see this movie outside of Johnny Greenwood mm. because it's the same kind of, like atonality is a part of classical music from about 1880, right? 1880, 1890. It's not part of the West. Like, you can't make the searches and put an atonal score on it yeah. because that's post, like, reconstruction, and it, you just wouldn't do it, right? So to bring an atonal score to this movie, even though it's 1925, it immediately pulls you out of the classical American Western. It takes you into a very uncanny place. And the, the, uh, for me, the courage of a campion to go to Johnny Greenwood, I want you to do your stuff. 
but for a period Western, the way you did it with Paul Thomas Anderson on There Will Be Blood. Mm. Except There Will Be Blood's not a classical Western, right? Mm. This is in many ways a classic Western. Cowboys wearing chaps and, you know, those spurs and things. That's the iconography. But then bring an eternal score and it's like, oh my God. Well, I think what we're seeing here in these two films is Eastwood is engaged in the mythos and the iconography and why it's important to the nation of America. Yes. Whereas Campion's going, this is a story set in that world but uh, there are so many issues at play. And I love there that because so she's much... New Zealander. Yeah. She's not as committed to the American Western from a nationalist point of view or kind of, you know, that doctrine of the manifest destiny point of view as someone like in Eastwood is a, you know, he's a card carrying. She looks at it as, as, as an environment to tell a story about masculinity and, and yeah. misogyny and, uh, and closeted homosexuality. Yeah. It's why this is a great pairing. And on a lighter note, when you sit back, look at the two methods that are used to bring about justice in these films. Clint Eastwood, yeah. which I'll do in my mission scene, he walks into mm. a bar and basically kills everyone. <laughs> this kid <laughs> sits back. the end of your mission yeah. scene. <laughs> mission scene today is one line. Fine, forgiven. <laughs> this kid, if you want to read it this way, mm. carefully and subtly plots a course of action that plays out like a chess game. Yeah. I but love then, that juxtaposition. But can I say, though, we talked about the, the radical aspect of the revisionist Clint Eastwood is the gunslinger killer returns to his family like restores the family wholesomeness, right? The boy is acting to restore his mother and the family unit. Yeah. And the lovely moment is, you know, when um, Jesse Plemons, he's got this beautiful line with Sister's dad, you know, we would very much like, Rose and I would like you to have Christmas with mm. us. And the father says, thank you, and pats him on the shoulder. And it's like the restoration of the family, minus the repressed homosexual who can't be part of a family in 1925 in the American West because he's gay. He can't reproduce. He can't have a heterosexual relationship. He doesn't fit. So the boy kills him off and the family's... Rest- no, but I mean, it's if we sinister. think about it thematically... Who's more conservative politically, here? <laughs> No, no, but I mean, if you think about it in those terms, there, there are some classical notes in Campion's movie that make it all the yes. more resonant and powerful. But it's, it's got to play with that world, you know? Oh, totally. To, to make it's what it makes it story. one of the really important... Yeah. It's why, you know... I mean, it's why, again, it's flabbergasting that the Oscars are not courageous enough to give it to the movie that obviously should get the best picture, but you just don't want to give it to it because it's, it's a little bit unsure of ourselves, you know, whether we, we can lord a movie like that. Well, there it is. Bruce running his mouth again, starting <laughs> trouble with the Academy. Let's move on to our mise en scene. Mise en scene. Now it's time for our mise en scene where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Herschel. What have you chosen for us from Unforgiven? I always set myself a, a goal of picking a scene that's not the obvious scene to go with. But in the case of Unforgiven, you can't go past the end scene. So I'm going to stick to Clint Eastwood making the world right. <laughs> so um, He would love you for that, I you, reckon. If you watch Unforgiven, you're going to note that about 90% of this film, okay, but maybe 80%, something like that, occurs in quite bright, colorful hues, sunlight, even when we're in the snow, it's beautiful and clean in the midst of a West that is corrupt, really. As soon as we switch over to what Eastwood has to do, and he goes into the bar and he starts eating the whiskey, everything in the look of the film changes. So I want to begin where Eastwood comes into town on the horse. And Bruce, you referenced this earlier, where it basically goes to your old Hollywood lightning and thunder in the background. And really, but it's also biblical. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. So it's the yeah. harbinger of death mm. arriving into town. Um, 
Eastwood is hunched over with that famous coat around him. Um, for people, you know, people know from our podcast, I'm a big Stephen King fan. It's basically the gunslinger in your head. If you, if you well, see what the gunslinger is doing, the man yeah. with no name. Yeah, so yeah. if you come in, so there Eastwood arrives. Ned is in the coffin on parade with a sign up on him. So that's the moral link to what he's about to do. Now he goes in. We then get the conversation with Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman is saying how they're about to round up the last of them. Um, it's Gene Hackman holding court, as he does with the biographer earlier, telling his story, mm. his importance. And then we hear <laughs> the double barrel cocking. And uh, we're bound to come across somebody who's seen these skunks. Who's the fellow who owns this shithole? I love it. <laughs> and, then, and, it skinny, and then it's skinny, right? Skinny steps forward Poor and he goes... Skinny. I always he goes, feel bad for that um, guy. He goes, it was sold to me by Greeley. It's called Greeley's. It was sold to me by Greeley. And then Eastwood says... You better clear out of there. Yes, sir. And they move to the side. And in what I consider to be like just one of the, the uh, really jarring depiction of violence, he just shoots Skinny with a, with a shotgun. And an important character is killed very clinically, very quickly, and then you know what the scene's going to be. It's the final confrontation then between Gene Hackman and Clint Eastwood. We've been waiting the entire movie for this. I love the way Clint Eastwood frames this entire scene. Gene Hackman steps forward, brazen. Eastwood, the gun misfires. And that's where you get into this frenetic Eastwood just killing people. Mm. Now, it's referenced earlier where Gene Hackman says, doesn't matter how fast you are, it's a person going to hold their nerve. And it is almost mythical. Because he starts shooting people with bullets raining around him. And as a viewer, you're caught up in this kind of almost supernatural ability of really money to kill people. He kills everyone. And the scene appears to be coming to an end until Gene Ackman stirs in the corner. And Eastwood walks right up to him with the shotgun pointed at his face. <laughs> and then Gene Ackman says... I mean, says, that's such a violent scene. Uh, yeah. Gene Ackman says... I don't deserve this. I was building a house. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Isn't that amazing? Because that's the moment in which he says, this is not morality. This is not an ordained... That's also revisionist, right? Because mm. the classical Western is extremely... Like, moralistic. Moralistic. Yeah. This is like, well, there's no morality here. I'm just doing a thing. But there's an and you're in my way. As money moves through this scene of violence, there's an exposition. He explains where he's going. Step away over here. Who owns this place? Like... I think it's Eastwood trying to explain the actions he's about to take in moving back mm. into, the, into the traditional money. I was going to say right up front, I said it was a meditation on time, but for me it's also mm. a nature versus nurture thing. Like, mm. What yeah, are yeah, you yeah. as a human being? That final scene plays like an, an interlude of traditional Western taking over a revisionist story and then giving way again mm. to the ending. Oh, and and it's so for me, it's, a, yeah. it's so complex, it, it's, so layered. It stands up there with the best of Sergio Leone's finals yeah. and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a great, great scene. I, can I add one thing? I know we finished. Uh, I just wanted to say that whole trope of it's not how fast you can shoot, it's how you can keep your head, sort of thing, or it's how you mm. can just pause, is, is a total inversion of the classical Western, which is how fast you can shoot. So if you go to Sergio Leone, one of my favorite scenes in For a Few Dollars More is where Lee Van Cleef is shooting the gun, so some, like from a distance. Mm. And if we see the gun as a phallus, which I think we have to, right? Like it's this kind of symbolic thing. It's also that Eastwood doesn't have that command over the gun anymore that he once had. 
You know, he can't mm. shoot everyone before they... He's not harmonica who can shoot everyone because he's just faster than everyone. He's more virile than everyone. He has to rely on something else. It's like an old man's mentality, which is, again, it's so subtle and so interesting. It's a great uh, moment that makes sense of the whole film. Yeah. I'm just like... I, I didn't know if he had it anymore, and he definitely yeah. acts throughout like he doesn't have it yeah. anymore. But then he, and then he gets a little bit of whiskey and a little bit of motivation, yeah. and that keep that guy can that's kill just, anyone. That's how I live. You get a booze into me, man. Give me a gun. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's not talk about their drinking. Let's problems not talk about our private lives problems. right now. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to our next mise en scene. Mise en scène. Bruce, what have you chosen for us from Power of the Dog? I. Uh, I don't really want to talk about an extensive sequence. I just want to mention uh, there's a, a, a book that people may be interested in called Carnal Thoughts. And it's written by a, an American scholar called Vivian Sobchak. And she has a whole section on the piano. And she says that Jane Campion has a kind of unique disposition towards shooting, which is so much about what she calls affect, right? A sense of feeling and sensation just to be clear, more than cognitive stuff. Shooting like, a film or shooting, shooting a, a movie, yeah. Okay, sorry, so not shoot, a gun. Like, yeah, so okay. she says. Campion is a filmmaker where if you watch her movies, say compared to someone like a Christopher Nolan, which is very cerebral, like very puzzle-based, right? Campion's all about how you feel about things, like the tactility of something, the emotional sense of something. And Power of the Dog is a great example. So as a, as a lead-in, the scene where uh, the boy is constantly flicking his comb, Mm. And the way she brings it up on the soundtrack, it's like, oh, my God, that grates on you. And I swear to God, it is, is a bodily sensation. Did you guys feel that? Yeah. The sound yeah. of the car makes you feel bodily about it. This is very campion, right? I, my business saying is the, let's call it the consummation without consummation because there's so much sexual symbolism, mm. right? Which is the moment in which the boy is, in effect, going to kill Benedict Cumberbatch with the hide. You get... Tight shots of the hand going into the water, which, yeah, it's disgusting, but it's also quite sensual. Mm. Like the hand, like so much stroking of the, you know. And when 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 people stroke the the hide, you hear it on the soundtrack, and it's so sensory. It's like a full immersive sensory. Anyway, my favorite is the exchange of the cigarette, right? Where the yeah. boy, firstly, he makes the cigarette, and if you recall, that is. Uh, uh, there's a lovely exchange moment, like the first connecting in Brokeback when they're in the bar at the early scene where um, Heath Ledger's lighting a cigarette and from memory, Jake Gyllenhaal opens the lighter and lights mm. it for him. And, and that's the moment where they connect, right? Similarly, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch throws him the tobacco. The boy has to roll the cigarette for the man, the Bronco Henry standing, and lights it. Now this, like, is it just me? There's a hell of a lot of sexuality mm -hmm. going on here. Firstly, he's putting the cigarette in his mouth. The cigarette is a cylindrical object, right? He then puts the cigarette into Benedict Cumberbatch's mouth, who puffs on it, blows out, goes back to the boy, mm. and so on, back and forth. Um, all the time, this is shot very slowly. So Campion is enabling us to get into, um, I'm going to call it the kind of sensory qualities of it. The, 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 you know, the smoke that now lingers on the air, the, the sound of the puffing, which, again, she's going to bring up on the soundtrack. It's just such a sensory sequence. And for me, it's the buildup of a lot of sensory sequences in the film. As you say, Craig, running over this is a strange score by... Greenwood, um, which people often describe as atonal. I think it is. I listened really carefully to it, watching it again this time. 
Can you just explain quickly a tonal word? Okay, so to- tonality, which is 99% of music, just means that the music, the way it's composed, it's searching to go somewhere, right? So, um, like if I Harmonically, go... Harmonically, it makes sense, makes you feel good. Makes you feel good. But, oh, the best way to say it, it feels resolved. Yes. A tonal just means, and when, when I say resolved, it means it's going to go to the first note in a scale. Like it's called the one. It's called the root or the tone center, right? In atonality, you're going to dance all around that tone, but you're never going to give the listener the one. And it's uncomfortable, right? And And famous atonality involves in um, sirens. Psycho, the end of psycho. But I'm saying even in like life, sirens, police sirens, ambulances and stuff like that. And those are deliberately atonal because Mm -hmm. otherwise we'd all like have fun when there's ambulance siren. Exactly. Right. So... Um, the atonal soundtrack from Greenwood uh, is not only jarring, it never, it, 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 it prevents you interpreting it. And this is what I saw in Rebecca. Like, Rebecca had never seen it, right? She didn't know how to read the scene. Was it a love scene? Was it a sex scene? Same, was there same some kind Rebecca, of violence? Sure. Was yeah. there some kind of sadism? Was there masochism in it? Well, Johnny Greenwood's score doesn't point you anywhere, right? So you've got this incredibly sensorial... Um, textured exchange of the cigarette there's so much overlay of sexual symbolism of the phallus and the and the mouth etc but then you've got this atonal score which is i'm not going to guide you and you're going to be uneasy about what you're watching compare that to say the way brokeback mountains consummation takes place which is so resolved and so you know a a feeling of completion there's no completion here so look that's my misunderstanding i'm saying Get a, if you get a chance, watch it again. Watch the way the campion uses, on the one hand, the, f- the, the, the the sensory qualities that a camera can bring and, and that framing can bring, and then the atonal score, which never lets you attach any feeling of closure. And uh, it's beautiful. All right, well, there it is. Two exciting westerns ear, sitting side by side with each other. Do you have anything else to say, guys? Are we done for our episode? I just want to say, if people are interested in... Uh, uh, I do an extended reading of Unforgiven and the Western genre mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in my first book, Toward a New Film Aesthetic, if, if anyone wants to check that so out. So the book's called Toward... Toward a New Film Aesthetic. All right, yeah. get it now. Get it, well, it's hot off the... Pr- how old is it? 20? It's like uh, 12 years, 13, 14 years old. Okay, excellent. By Dr. Bruce Isaacs. Check it out. That's it for our compelling... You can get it on Kindle as well. Well, that completes our Western special. Next week, it's time to slaughter some goats and dance around the maypole as we head into the terrifying world of pagan horror. One film follows a conservative police sergeant investigating a murder on a small island and the other a group of American college students visiting distant relatives in the Swedish wilderness. Yes, it's 1973's The Wicker Man versus 2019's Midsummer. Uh, you can watch The Wicker Man on SBS On Demand, YouTube and Shutter, and Midsummer is available on Netflix Prime Video. And Stan, guys, it's going to be very exciting. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to this because I'm actually thank Nicolas Cage, actually, for his impression of the bees uh, when in the remake of Wicker Man, um, I think it's been watched by like 20 million people on yeah. YouTube. Oh, no, not the bees! That put me on to the 1973 version, and I'm really happy I came across it. Looking forward to this week. Just to be clear, we're doing the 1973 version. Yeah, we're not doing the Nick Cage one, We're sticking to Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward. And Bruce, this is probably an appropriate time to announce that you've been planning something with the man himself, Ari Aster. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so excited. It's come together. We've got a research symposium at the University of Sydney on November 3. 
which is the horror cinema of Ari Aster. We're going to be looking at everything he's done, Hereditary, Midsummer, Bo is Afraid, and including a paper on his early short movie, which is going to be interesting. Need the, jo- the Johnson's one? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so there's, there's a guy at Macquarie who wrote to me and said, uh, can I do a paper on the, the short film? So That's said, hey, awesome. Brilliant. So we got cut. And so, but the most exciting thing is we've actually got Ari Aster, who's going to be doing a Q&A with me. He's going to be live streamed from the US. And we're going to do a Q&A on like the history of horror, the philosophies of horror. Ari is a really smart sort of a character. You've seen him in interviews. So that's incredibly exciting. Wow. We've got an evening keynote with Alexandra Helen Nicholas, who's a major yes. uh, theorist, critic, fantastic scholar of horror. Now, um, uh, excellent. How do you know people want to come to this? You've got a week to book, I guess. What? Yeah, so I'm going to be putting through. So, so on Instagram uh, now, you will see links to these events. The rooms, uh, we're going to be doing it in person, obviously, but um, you can also join in virtually via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And that's open to anyone and it's free. So if you're into horror, and especially if you're into Ari Aster, I recommend get online and, and like book your spot. And um, the whole day is going to be a major event. I should just say, if you've never been to a university symposium, it's a little different to like a podcast or an event where, that they put on at the, you know, the opera house, like all those speeches and stuff. It can be a little more academic, so to speak. Like it'll be more academic, but... Uh, well, just I've don't turn up with popcorn and, you know, <laughs> crazy... Yeah, and the truth is I've put it together. So I've, I've curated it to have certain kinds of people presenting. Yeah. And the whole goal of this is I don't want it to be just a whole bunch of academics talking to each other about how smart they are. Okay. It's like about outreach. And about finally, finally, <laughs> yeah, finally, like getting over <laughs> ourselves, and it's about going. Hey, what does horror cinema mean to a contemporary audience? So, oh, well, that looks very. That's very exciting. We'll, we'll update you the week after Halloween because that's when we would have done it and be doing our next podcast. We'll be able to talk about yeah. how that. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. As well, yeah. the um, the Halloween night. Event. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. The other thing is, I'm so excited. We finally got permission which is hard to get, to screen Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, on a massive outdoor screen at the University of Sydney on Halloween night, October 31. Wow. uh, On the Botany Lawn. So this is going to be a big event. Um, We're going to have a prize for best dressed. So if you're coming, dress up. I'm going to dress in a suit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, oh, I should announce, we are screening a short uh, award-winning horror film by a filmmaker who works at the university and he's given us permission to screen it and he's even going to intro it for a couple of minutes. So it's going to be fantastic. You get to see this. I've seen the movie. It's actually brilliant. Uh, I thought it was... So I'm thrilled that he's um, asked us to screen it for the Mm -hmm. big audience and then we'll chase it up with Halloween. All right, well, there you go. An exciting night on Halloween night if you want to come to the university. I'm sure you can buy tickets, but you can also just turn up. Uh, it's <laughs> up to you. I'm not saying you should, but, hey, it's a lawn. They're going to it's stop a it. big lawn. It's a big lawn. You could be passing by. It's totally not your fault. All right. Oh, I can, both yeah. events are free, so we're not charging. Oh, great. So you just got to register on event. Yeah, yeah. Once, once you charge at the university, you get a whole bunch of legal stuff. So we just made it free. Awesome. Okay, well, don't forget to rate and review our podcast wherever you listen to it, as it will help other people to find us. We're also on Instagram at Film versus Film Podcast, and we uh, will update you on what what we're doing there. And also, we do uh, that. Uh, what what is that thing we do? What are we watching this weekend? Ah, that's right. Okay, there you go. So we're doing that as well on Instagram. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Herschel Isaacs. I've been Bruce Isaacs. Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.